Welcome to Extra Innings, the Phillies podcast from the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm Scott Lauber. I'm Bob Brookover. And I'm Matt Breen. Guys, we are uh, almost a full week now into games. And um, I guess we'll lead off with uh, Zach Eflin. So we sit here on, on Wednesday night, and Zach Eflin pitched earlier today in Lakeland against the Tigers, and he was great. Couple of, uh, couple of real, uh, solid innings for him. And he's a guy I'm really curious about this spring because they have set expectations for Zach Eflin really, really high. Even before Joe Girardi referred to him as our 1C after Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, 1A and 1B, uh, I sound like early, uh, you know, during the offseason, it seemed like every time we talked to Joe, Joe Girardi or Dave Dombrowski, um, they talked about Zach Eflin in the same breath as Nola and Wheeler even then. And it wasn't that long ago that, you know, we were talking about Zach Eflin in the same breath with Vince Velasquez and Nick Pavetta at the back of the rotation. So what do you account for, you know, this, this kind of, these kind of heightened expectations and are you buying on Zach Eflin? I, I, I'm always a little leery of one A's and one B's and one C's because I go back to the, the early 2000s, I believe it was, and the Phillies made a deal to get Andy Ashby in here, and Edway declared them declared him the one B to to Kirk Schilling's one A, and by the end of the season, Edway was trading. Uh, Andy Ashby was flashing one of his five fingers at fans, and I'll let you guess which one. And Edway was trading Andy Ashby to the Atlanta Braves, and it didn't go so well. That said, 2000. Um, that was 2000. Yes, it was quite the season. <laughs> it was. It was. It, it ended up being Terry Francona's last. Um, but that said, you know, I don't know if Zach Eflin qualifies as being a one C in the same same category as Aaron Nola and and uh, Zach Wheeler. He's got a lot to prove to be that. But what he showed late last year uh, and just. Just when you talk to him, you can tell there's a maturity level in him that he kind of knows what he wants to do. Um, and if there is a 1C or if he's close to those other two guys, it, it really does change the whole dynamic of this team where if you've got three guys and you're winning at three out of every five uh, on a regular, you know, at least a pretty consistent basis, you're going to be a playoff team. So, I mean, that's, it's a big deal. His season is a big deal and probably, and perhaps the difference, uh, between them being a playoff team and not being a playoff team. Yeah. I think, I think you brought up a good point, Bob, that he, um, you know, when you talk to Zach Eflin, he knows who he is. He's comfortable with who he is. And I think, you know, you couldn't really say that maybe a couple of seasons ago when it seemed like his identity on the mound was being controlled by other people and other forces. The previous regime wanted to make him a four-seam fastball at the top of the zone and a power pitcher when even in the minor leagues coming up, he's been a sinker ball, ground ball pitcher. And that, that's how he got to the majors, and that's how he's going to have success, and that's what he showed last year where he pitched the way he wanted to pitch. That was his identity. And if you look at his pitch rate, his sinker he threw last year for 52% of his pitches. That's more than double he threw the year before that. And the way that he pitched at the end of the season, remember the shutout against the Blue Jays when, you know, pivotal game where the Phillies were still fighting for a playoff spot. 
And then that game in D.C. against the Nationals, how well he pitched that into the, I think, into the ninth inning. And, you know, again, he's on the line. Like, that, that was, that's the, that was the kind of performance you wanted from him. And what does this team become? Like, you know you who you have at one and two. If you have a solid number three, now four and five is less important. But if number three is shaky, four and five, which is, you know, you don't really know what you have in four and five becomes even that much more important. So, I think, yeah, maybe, maybe that is a difference between this team, this team being a playoff team and not being a playoff team is what they get from Zach Eklund. And so, so far, I think you, it's okay to be optimistic for that. Yeah, you know, every really good pitcher that I've ever covered, um, you know, it's two things. Obviously, it's talent and stuff, but it's also there's this attitude. It's kind of an alpha male sort of way of carrying yourself. You know, um, John Lester had it when I covered him, and Josh Beckett had it, and you see it in, you know, Kurt Schilling, and you, you know, or you saw it in Kurt Schilling, and you saw it in Pedro Martinez, and you know, back in the day when Cliff Lee was here, he very much had it. Um, you know, uh, it's it's sort of this this confidence, this sort of swagger, and I felt like we saw it from Zach Eflin a little bit toward the end of last year when he was really starting to pitch well. He was their most consistent pitcher down the stretch. And we were, remember we were talking to him the last week of the season about, you know, hey, would you would you be available to come in from the bullpen if they need you that last weekend of the season in Tampa? And he said, absolutely, give me the ball. I want the ball. I want to pitch. You know, we were talking about because they went right down to the wire and, you know, Nola and Wheeler had to pitch toward the end that Eflin might have to start game one of a postseason series. And he said, bring it on. I'm ready for this. And I talked to his high school coach just a few weeks before spring training started and I brought that up to him and he kind of laughed and said you know he's seen it too and he's known Eflin since Eflin was 12 or 13 he said I've seen him grow in confidence and he took it back to 2019 you know we think about you know Eflin kind of quote-unquote rebelling I guess against Chris Young, the pitching coach, and saying, I'm not going to elevate my fastball anymore. I'm going to throw my sinker. It's my bread and butter. And his high school coach told me that it was really some of the veteran pitchers on that team. He named Jake Arrieta. He named Tommy Hunter with kind of getting with Eflin and saying, hey, you know what makes you good. You do your thing. Don't worry about anything else. Like you were the you take ownership of your career. And in a sense, Zach Eflin really did that in 2019 finished the season really strong, was kind of ahead of Pavetta and Velasquez going into spring training last year, and just went from there. And I think we've just seen it build and grow. And the stuff has gone along with it. You know, his curveball got so much better last year. It was the main reason why his strikeout rate jumped the way it did. And when you hear him now talking about his changeup and wanting to turn his changeup into a weapon, you know, we've seen him do it with his curveball. You have reason to think that, well, maybe he can do it with his changeup too, and then he really becomes a good pitcher. So I'm not telling you he's there yet. I think that he's got to prove it. He's got to pitch, you know, 180 innings in a season also, which he's never done before. But, you know, I definitely think the arrow is trending in the right direction with him because he's kind of figured out, like you said, Matt, who he is. It's it's funny how long it takes these guys to, to figure it out. I mean, Jim Fergus used to say that the problem with pitchers is by the time they figure it out, they're in a different uniform. Uh, the Phillies are lucky that he, that this guy isn't, I mean, although it's, it's amazing to go back and to think he was traded for Jimmy Rollins. Uh, it seems like forever ago that Jimmy Rollins played here and maybe 
we're at that time where this trade really starts, the Jimmy Rollins trade starts to look really good for the Phillies in, in 2021. Put a check mark next to Ruben Amaro's name on that one, right? That was his de- one of his deals. That was one of his better deals when he was when it was time to finally time to rebuild. So we'll stay on the pitching theme as we round first base into our next segment here, and we will uh, we'll talk about the rotation and the back of the rotation a little bit because you know Aaron Nola's made his first start, Zach Wheeler made his. Zach Eflin made his. And now, at least to me, it feels like now spring training can start because on Thursday, Matt Moore is going to face the Yankees in Clearwater. On Friday, Chase Anderson is going to face the Pirates in Clearwater. Both both games are on television. That's an added bonus. And we're going to see Vince Velasquez and Spencer Howard come in after them, one on each day. So now we've got four pitchers competing for two spots, and that seems like it's going to be the schedule uh, for two out of every five days here going forward. We're going to get to see them go essentially head-to-head on back-to-back days. I'm kind of excited to see that competition and see where where it leads. You know, are you guys kind of focused in on that as much as me? Yeah, I think – Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I, I, sorry, Bob. I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's fun when the games start because you finally have, you know, baseball to watch again and things to write about and things to talk about. But then it's like – you know, by game four, so, you know, what, what are we talking about? It's the same thing. So now that to have that natural storyline the next few days, and then, like you said, it's going to repeat itself every five days, it's, it's going to be fun to watch. And I'm curious to see who Matt Moore is. Like, you know, how what, what did it mean for him to go to Japan and have success over, over there? And does that translate to the major leagues? And I'm really curious to see what well, we talked last episode about Spencer Howard and what the plan is with Spencer Howard. But that was with the idea that the AAA season was, was going to start in April. Now with the alternate site, it's going to be at least for the first month, maybe longer. Are you comfortable with putting Spencer Howard or Vince, whoever the losers of this competition, if they're not in the bullpen, do they go to the alternate? Is that good enough for them? Is that especially Spencer Howard? Is that good enough for him to be in the alternate site? Or does he, he need, I would think he would need competitive innings somewhere. And if it's not in AAA, which it can't be, then it would have to be in the major league bullpen. Well, I'm, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to predict that, that Chase Anderson and Matt Moore, flip the two, flip two around. Matt Moore and Chase Anderson will be the four and five. That Vince Velasquez will be in the bullpen. And then Spencer Howard will start at the alternate site. Uh, there's going to be a triple A season. Um, I just, you know, unless, unless Spencer Howard's really like, he's got to be really lights out. Uh, because you're paying these other two guys, you know, you, you, you have options. When, when you have options and you want to keep people, the best way to keep those people is to use, use an option. Um, now I, don't, I I can't imagine either Matt Moore or Chase Anderson have an option left. Uh, I have not looked it up. No, they're not optional. Yeah, so I just that's their way. That's the way you can keep everybody, uh, and you can ease Spencer Howard in the season. It's not like you know, it's not like the AAA season starting in August. You know, so um, you know, I, I'm going to go on record with that prediction right now. We'll, we'll, we'll see if we can. When we get to opening day, we'll see see how I do. I think Vinny Velo can be an option, though. 
Uh, I'm not positive. I'd okay. have to look. I feel like I, I read, I looked it up the other day. I'm, I'm, I'm checking it out as we speak, but, but keep here's going. Here's the thing though. Vinny Velo of the group, of the four of them profiles best in the bullpen. And I'm not saying he profiles best in the bullpen. I'm saying he, and he might. But of the four, like Chase I'm Anderson. I'm sorry, sorry. He cannot be options. I'm okay. Corrected. You know, and, and I don't think they would anyway. Cause like I said, you, you could put him in the bullpen. He's done it before. Chase Anderson has already said, um, he feels more comfortable being a starter and the results bear that out. You know, look, the Blue Jays put him in the bullpen last September and he had that game in New York where he gave up five home runs in one inning. Um, it, it just didn't go very well. I don't think Matt Moore at this stage is a is a bullpen guy. Neither Matt maybe Moore nor Howard have had success in the bullpen. Neither. Of them. No. Um, maybe, maybe Howard. You know, um, maybe it's a way of um, keeping his arm moving and getting him some innings and managing his workload. They'll have to figure out how to do that. But Bob, I agree with you. I think Moore and Anderson get first dibs at four and five unless they just completely fall on their face in spring training. And of the two of them, I'm, I'm really intrigued by Matt Moore. Number one, he's left-handed, and it's been so long since the Phillies have had a lefty in their rotation from the start of the season. And number two, he's coming back from Japan. And I was started to look this up the other day. Not a really long list of major league pitchers who went to Japan, came back, and were better or had success. I mean, Miles Michaelis from the Cardinals did it uh, more recently. Uh, Colby Lewis comes to mind from the Texas Rangers did it in the early 2010s in the early aughts. Um, but I don't, I don't know. It's not a super long list of guys who've done what Matt Moore is trying to do, which is come back from Japan and be as good or better than you were when you, you know, when, when you, well, better than when you left because you left for a reason. So I'm really curious to see what he comes back looking like. I agree with both of you guys that those two, Moore and Anderson, are the favorites. I, I don't think, even though it's not a ton of money that they sign them for, but I, I don't think they sign them to fish in the bullpen. They sign them to fill out, fill out their starting rotation. The, 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 other, the other thing is, and we all know this, is that they're all going to be used. Maybe Vince Velasquez would be the fourth of the four to, to go into the rotation, but the, Spencer Howard, even if he's not in the rotation, starts to – He's going to play a critical role for this team at some point during the season because that's just the way this game works. But is Spencer Howard from April to May pitching at the alternate site? Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, you, no, I think he's in the bullpen. You think he's in the bullpen? Uh, but if if he does go to the alternate site, yes, I you know, do, maybe they have to do the alternate site better than they did it last year. Uh, make it more intense, but they didn't have alternate sites back in the nineties, nineteen ninety three. What is this alternate they site? Would, I would have loved a good road trip to the alternate site. They, they would have always through COVID back then. I often felt like I was in an alternate universe when I was in the ninety three clubhouse. <laughs> Very good. So um, let's keep it moving around the horn, and let's talk about the catching situation because we are approaching the two-week mark of JT Real Muto in a cast. And Joe Girardi said today that uh, within the next few days, probably by the end of the week, they will take an x-ray. They'll see how much the broken uh, thumb has healed. And they'll decide, does he have to stay in the cast 
Can he come out of it? Can he start to do more things? And once they know that, they'll know if he's, they'll have a better idea of whether he's looking like a realistic possibility for opening day or not. But one thing I think we've known, and we definitely found out more today, is that, you know, Joe Girardi loves himself to manage Knapp, and he wants Andrew Knapp to play more than he did last year. Uh, and uh, Andrew Knapp and Zach Eflin have a really good rapport. Uh, we saw that on display last year. They've been together since the minor leagues. You know, Girardi really likes Knapp um, and wants him to be a, a bigger bigger part of this group, bigger part of this team, and he thinks it could even help JT Realmuto to give him a little bit more of a blow now and then. Um, you know, I guess, you know, how much do we see – well, I guess first let's say, like, you know, do, do you sort of feel like you've seen growth in Andrew Knapp over the course of the last year plus? Feels like we're talking about him as more of a, you know, as more of a, a short thing, and 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 you know, over under on how many games he plays this season. He he was, you know, if we go back two years, he was kind of a whipping boy for the fans, which it was it was ridiculous because yes, he he did not hit much, but he also did not play much. And anybody who's ever played the game of baseball, playing once a week, go try to go try to hit 95 mile an hour fastballs when you're coming off the bench. To hit once a week, but you're talking about how much Joe Girardi loves him. Joe Girardi is not alone in that fan club. The pitchers love him. Zach Eflin talked about how he's had a relationship with him going back to Double A, and it, it's often forgotten that that Andrew Knapp was a pretty good prospect, especially at that time of Double. Go back and look at that season he had at Double A. I think he had a a 1,000 over 1,000 OPS that season uh, with, with Reading with Double with, with Reading. And the pitchers love throwing to him. They all talk about it. He's got a great rapport with, with that. That's one of the guys we're probably going to see him, see him catch a lot. Um, so, I mean, if, if Joe Girardi's in love with Zach Eflin, it's because Zach Eflin has earned, or not Zach Eflin, uh, Andrew Knapp. It's because Andrew Knapp has, has earned that love. Yeah, I remember. What did, uh, what did Eflin say today? Eflin was the best hitter he ever saw in person through in double, double A. a. And I remember that year in double A, he said uh, that Matt was the best game caller he's ever had. And it, so it's just funny. Like, I remember him saying that to me then in 2015 and then hearing that today that he's saying he was also the best hitter that year. It's just, and it's not like Andrew Knapp came out of nowhere that year. He was a third round pick. He was on the radar. He started that year injured at Clearwater. So came up to double A a little bit later. But it was a big deal when he got there. He was this is a potential catcher of the future. Hasn't really worked out that way, but last year he was one of the best, most productive backup catchers in baseball. Um, so I think it's he's a more than you know, they have the best catcher in baseball. He's gonna play a lot, but they have a very, you know, productive backup. And I think that's what they found out last year was Andrew Knapp, the guy that, you know, was a big time prospect at one point, still is gonna be able to play a role. But did anybody else feel come away a little bit less optimistic that JT Real Muto will be ready for opening day after listening to Joe Girardi and, and listening to Zach Eflin today? I think the combination of both, to me at least, makes me think where a week ago I would have said, you know, 100% chance he's ready. I feel like there's maybe a little bit more of a chance that he's not ready April 1st. Oh, I think there's definitely a chance he's not. Um Again, like what happens if that x-ray doesn't show as much healing as they thought? 
you know. Um, so, you know, we'll know more after that. But, um, no, I think they have to prepare for the possibility that he's not ready. And, you know, Andrew Knapp, you know, it's funny. The funny thing about backup catchers, it's a little like being a backup quarterback, right? Like, you know, everybody loves you until you have to play, and they realize there's a reason why you're a backup. And it's, it's super difficult if you're in Andrew Knapp's shoes because – you're playing behind J.T. Real Muto, who plays more than just about every catcher in the league, which means you play less than just about every backup in the league. And it's really difficult to ask a guy to come in and be productive, especially at the plate, when he plays so little. You hear that when you talk to Dusty Watson. You hear about it when you talk to Joe Girardi. You hear about it. I felt like Dave Kapler used to talk about that a lot with regard to Knapp. Like, boy, it's really hard for Knapp to get in the groove at the plate because he just he plays once a week. Um, you know, so I think the idea is, Andrew Knapp's a pretty good player, you know, and uh, you're going to want to give him more playing time because you want him to show off what he can do a little bit. So, you know, especially early in the season, like when Real Muto, whether he's ready on day one or not, you know, he's probably going to need to get eased back in a little bit. They're not just going to throw him in and have him play six days a week and say, go get him. Um, so it's nice to have Andrew Knapp, especially when, you know, one thing, too, that I that I kind of got today, you don't get this from a ton of managers. Most managers that I've covered have always said, like, ah, you know, I don't want to I don't want to put myself in a box and commit to a pitcher catcher relationship. And Joe Girardi loves that. He loves the fact that a pitcher and a catcher can have that rapport. He had it himself with David Cohn when he was a catcher with the Yankees. I think he loves the fact that Eflin and Knapp work so well together and have such a great rapport. I could see him sending out Andrew Knapp almost reflectively 30 times this year whenever Zach Eflin pitches. And, you know, that's one start a week. And, you know, if you can get him another game here or there, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, he's playing a little bit more and you give him a chance to be a, a better player. And I think that's what they'd like to see. I bet you – you know, Joe doesn't never make a big deal out of it, but I bet he wishes there was a DH so he could really do it the way he would want to do it. And, and, and it there probably is going to be for much of uh, J.T. Ramuto's contract, uh, but if Andrew Knapp is really as good as uh, Joe Girardi thinks he is, they're probably not going to get, be able to keep him much beyond his free agent year. So, cause he's and that's how to... they were able to do it last year because you had the DH. They, they you, know, were, yeah. you know, so poor Joe would love to have that again. Yeah. Uh, if, but for, yeah, don't you... for the start of the season, you know, if it, it, they do do this X-ray, and there's, it doesn't look exactly right. You know, they'd be fools to to, to rush this guy back. Uh, you know, it's going to be. There's no reason for them to not be cautious when you got a guy under a five-year contract. Um, you know, and you know, there's a lot more baseball to be played beyond the first month of the season. Yeah, don't you think? I mean, to that DH thing, like. You could see, all right, put the DH in the National League and Real Muto DHs twice a week. Andrew McCutcheon DHs twice a week. You know, it's a way of getting Reese Hoskins off his feet once a week. Uh, maybe Harper could DH once a week. I mean, I think Girardi would love it if, if he had that, the ability to do that because he's got some personnel that would really fit that role very well, even though he doesn't have a, you know, you don't have a David Ortiz style permanent DH. You've got a lot of different guys who would benefit from being able to DH once or twice a week. Which, which is pretty much what the DH has become in most places. With, I just but Before we move on, I, I just thought of this now as we're talking about the DH. Do you, and, and we're not going to have a DH in the NL. 
Do you, if you asked me five years ago, I would have said, I don't want the DH in the NL. I love, you know, the strategy of baseball and the idea of pinch hitting and all that stuff. I, I thought, I always thought that was a great part about the game. But I think last year of watching the DH every day and seeing how the game's played. And now we're talking about like roster construction and how, you know, the Phillies would benefit and the whole, you know, how teams benefit from having a DH. And then we're talking about, we always talk about how the game can be sped up or it can be improved for fans. I, I don't think it's improved without having a pitcher bat. So I'm just curious, where do you guys stand? Like, do, do you, I know you, you know, you grew up baseball fans, so, you, you know, you probably just like me love the strategy of the game, but has that kind of worn off now and you'd rather just see a universal DH? I um I don't mind the DH I really don't I I appreciate the strategy of the game um, you know late innings figuring out when to pull your pitcher uh, if he's coming up to bat and he's pitching well in a game but you know fans like offense the name of the game is to bring more fans to the game um, I I have voted for DHs for the Hall of Fame uh, to me it's a position on the field I also I also kind of think both leagues ought to play by the same rule. And, you know, I, I think it, you know, I think it creates more offense in the game and more offense means more excitement. So, you know, I would say, I will sacrifice the, uh, the chess match and strategy for, um, a more popular sport. And I think, I think there was a time where there were more pitchers that were decent hitters and they worked at it more than they do. It, it's become, the thing where we just don't want these guys to get hurt going to the plate more than it, you know, how can we make them into good hitters? Uh, because of that, you know, it's a game that's, a game that's dying for more contact anyway, sending pitchers to the plate isn't helping that cause. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you, Matt, for a long time I was, was resistant to the, to the DH in the National League, but Having watched it last year, even even though it was just 60 games, it's fine, and I don't think it really made that much difference between time of games. But, you know, the, the problem the problem with time of games is not solved by having or not having the DH. There are many more problems besides that that make games too too long too often. I mean, just to to that point, you know. Uh... David Ortiz probably does not have the career he had without being able to be a DH. And I know that in the time I was there uh, covering that team, he was the player whose at-bats you wanted to be in your seat to see. You know, like, you didn't want to miss that because something was probably going to happen when he came to the plate. And we need more players in the game like that, not fewer. And uh, I think, I think generally speaking, baseball is more exciting when you've got Players who can make things happen that way, and that could be that it could also be the last five years of what we were watching with Bryce Harper. I mean, I can see Bryce Harper still being a good hitter long after he's the uh, an effective outfielder. I could definitely see that being the case for him. So, bring it on. Let's home. Wrap it up. What are the bases? Bring it on the bases with what was undoubtedly the best news of the week. The city of Philadelphia has relaxed its restrictions to comply with the state's guidelines, and we are going to have 
the Phillies able to sell uh, tickets to a 20% capacity at Citizens Bank Park. That means 8,800 tickets will be available for opening day in the first 19 home games of the season. And what are we doing? We're, we're going to... We're going to go to the question of what is the most fans you think will be at a Phillies game this season uh, at any point? Because obviously that 8,800 number. Yeah, I guess can, where do you think that capacity will show up? Where do you think the percentage capacity, just to make it easier, where do you think that it's at 20 now? Where is it at the, at the end? Of, what's the most it gets to this season? What's the highest? I'm going, I'm going to say 50%. I think it seems like we're trending in the right direction with the coronavirus. Um, you know, Biden said we're, we'll have vaccinations by the end of May, every adult that could, um, that wants one. So I think the summer seems really good at this point, but I don't think it would be, it, to me, it would be, uh, it would kind of a rush to fill the entire stadium by the end of the season. I think 50% is still a good amount, but also playing it safe. And I think you see that sometime in the in the mid- middle of the season. Well, I just want to say first that I thought the best news of the week was that my kitchen table finally came in after five months. But uh, that's great news. Thank you. But, but it's also good news that the fans are coming back. Uh, also great news. Um, I, I'm going to pump that number up to 75 percent. Wow! Uh, because. I don't think we're going to get to 100, percent but for baseball, for, what's that? For, no, maybe it's your question. Uh, so back off and listen to my answer. <laughs> um, 75 percent. I'm, I'm saying 75 percent because most teams don't have 100 percent anyway. Uh, so you can put 75 percent. I think safely in if everybody's vaccinated, but I don't think we get there till like September. But I think by September when pennant races are going on, you know, and that's when you're going to see your, your most fans in the stands anyway, uh, for, for teams that are in a race. Other teams, it goes the other way at that point. Um, uh, but, but I'm going to go with 75%. And when I'm right about this and I'm right about Chase Anderson and Matt Moore, um, you can start calling me Bostradamus. Anyway, you're on. right about all those things. You can invite us. You can invite us all over for dinner at your new kitchen table. <laughs> what is the largest dinner got, party the Brookovers will host? It's got six seats and they're they're padded. It's really nice. Well, what capacity will you have the dinner table at? What percentage? The, I'm going to go 100 percent if you're fully vaccinated. If you're if you're vaccinated and masked up, you can sit at my kitchen table. That's fine. I can't. I can't oh, wear a mask while I eat at your kitchen table. What's that? I'm going to have to take the mask down while I eat at your kitchen table. How do you feel about that? It's fine as long as you're vaccinated and socially distanced. Do you have enough room for that? Yeah, of course. How big is this table? It's big. It's <laughs> that big. It's really big. Six feet. It's, it's six feet. You, you might you, you might not actually have to put your plate on the table, but. But you'll be able to look at it and admire it. I I am going to be more conservative than Bob and just slightly less conservative than Matt. I'm going to go 60%. I think um, 
I think we nudge over half capacity at some point uh, in the summertime, and hopefully we stay there once we get there. You know, I thought that the health commissioner made a good point. You know, he said, look, let's not let's not get too cocky about this. Let's let's wear our masks and let's you know let's be careful because just because we're at 8,800 tickets on April 1st does not mean we will stay there if the infection rate spikes. So. Um, you know, I, I think I think we proceed, but we proceed cautiously, and maybe by the middle or end of summer, we're at like, you know, somewhere in the 60% range. That sort of feels feels good, and and hopefully, um, hopefully we're right because I think I, I know a 60% full Citizens Bank Park would be better than last year, and I think it'd be pretty cool that, you know, if they could have that many people in there, and the Phillies, you know, would be could be playoff relevant. I think that would be pretty exciting. Here's a fun fact for you. The 8,800 fans on opening day, it will not, not throw out last year because it doesn't count. There, the, there was no attendance. So it'll be the lowest attended Phillies game. Bob, do you know since when? Uh, since, since 1917, I was there. 1991. Expo Phillies, September of 91, a uh, steel girder fell at Olympic Stadium in Montreal. So they had to move right. the games. The games like. in Philly. On like a week's notice, they, I, I was there. there. They moved them to Philly. Yeah. They tarped off the upper deck. They sold tickets for five right. bucks, and they they got about yeah. thousand fans each night. So we're I thought you were talking about Do you remember what, it? What, what would, do I, I remember the game. I remember that happening. Yeah, oh yeah. What was uh, the crowd? Was, was, was it weird? What's that? How was the crowd? Like, did uh, you? Yeah, but you know what? Back in 1991, and like that, that was a I good night. Over, I took over to in '89. Like to have 8,000 people there in September, it really wasn't that rare. They would announce like 18,000 or 15,000, yeah. but in, in reality, a lot of times, and there was—I mean, from '89 to '91, a lot of bad baseball, uh, and there was some really small crowds in September. There's, there's yeah, my members of the vet are a lot of empty seats. The best, the best one I ever remember is in Montreal in Olympic Stadium. There, you know, when the when the Expos were crashing and you could tell there was going to be no baseball there soon. Then being like literally like 300 people in the stands, and I remember <laughs> quoting Randy Wolf as saying it was really distracting because I could hear the guys in the front row having conversations and hear what they were actually talking about. Wow. <laughs> That's the that's the one I remember most. We've all covered we've all covered games at Marlins Park, and it was worse I thought at Dolphin Stadium when they were there because um, it was a football stadium and they had nobody in the in the place. Brandon Kinsler was joking around with me the other day when I was talking to him. He said uh, maybe that's why he was with the Marlins last year. He said maybe that's why we played so well because we're used to playing in front of nobody. <laughs> um, you know, so the crowd last year didn't fate the lack of crowds didn't phase them. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm positive that the Phillies played games at Dolphin Stadium with 8,000 or less, um, you know, at some of those games in the in like the mid 2000s. There's no doubt. So, uh, should we leave it there, or should we? Uh, We're home safely, I think. Let's let's leave it there. I think so. We'll bring I think it back next week. Home. We will. We'll be back next week with more of the Extra Innings podcast. In the meantime. Uh, we will be in your newspaper, Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Daily News. We will be 
on your internet at inquire.com. We will be in your ear with this podcast. We have the newsletter, which comes at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays in your inbox. Uh, so keep it locked on inquire.com for all your Phillies news as spring training uh, continues. For Bob, for Matt, I'm Scott. We'll talk to you next week.